Welcome, soccer enthusiasts, to another episode of Rooster and the Villain. Today, we have a, the privilege of hosting a true soccer legend, none other than J.P. Della Camera. He was the play-by-play announcer for Major League Soccer's Philadelphia Union. He's been in the game uh, covering soccer since the NAS- NASL days. He's covered multiple World Cups, uh, including this last one in, in Qatar. So thank you very much, J.P. Thanks for coming on. Michael, my pleasure. First, you have to explain to me the reason for the title of your show, because I have no idea. Sure, yeah, it's kind of an odd one. So the podcast started in 2020 covering Tottenham Hotspur, Rooster, and then I had a friend that uh, was a Aston Villa supporter, so Rooster and the Villain. Okay, and now it makes sense, but I had no idea. I'm, I'm kind of new to the game, so I came, I started watching soccer really around 2014 World Cup. I played soccer growing up. But I was a huge basketball, a huge football guy. And then right around 2014, I switched to all soccer. And since then, I've just been a, a soccer nut. It's, it's the only sport I watch anymore. Good for you. That's good. We need yeah. more, more yeah, people. Yeah, we like do. That. We do. And that's, uh, that's the hope of the podcast a little bit. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm so, I, I love lower league soccer in America. And I love researching all these old stories. I'm reading this book called Eight World Cups by George Vesey, where he talks about uh, you know, the, the eight World Cups he had been to at the time and how he kind of fell in love with soccer. And I noticed, you know, I listened to a podcast that you were on recently where in the 80s it sounded like you wanted to be a, an announcer for NHL. But then this uh, major indoor soccer league kind of fell into your lap. And from there, you, you know, obviously your soccer career took off. So I was just kind of curious of how that opportunity came up and, and what your impressions were of soccer when you first fell into it. Yeah, I think I always liked outdoor soccer. I grew up I grew up in Boston, so it was a big hockey area. I mean, now everybody talks about the Patriots and the NFL, but in those days, Patriots were always for sale. They were the Boston Patriots. The Celtics were champions, but they never really sold out. Bruins sold out all the time. They were the hot ticket in town. And baseball was like, at that time, it's not anymore, but at that time, it was America's pastime. And I always thought baseball was too slow for me. It, didn't see the move. Soccer moved. I got to watch some of it. I'm trying to remember whether it was ABC in the old NASL days. Somebody was televising it. And I started to watch it and appreciated the game. And so my minor league hockey career took about 10 years of my life. Everything was great. Fantastic. Didn't make any money. Played on or worked on teams that won titles. The camaraderie was fantastic. Uh, the bus rides were long and frequent. And at some point, you know, I the NHL was maybe a 16 or 17, 18 team league, not like it is today. And so the opportunities weren't really there. And two hours away from me in Pittsburgh was the Pittsburgh Spirit. Uh, I started to hear about indoor soccer, watched some games, and I thought, wow, this is like hockey on grass. This might be for me. And I tried it, fell in love with it. And, you know, the rest is history because the indoor led to outdoor. And then eventually, when I stopped chasing my NHL dream, I ended up getting a call from the Atlanta Thrashers, filled in one year, six games maybe. And then a couple of years later, that job opened up. And then I spent five years with them. So when you first started calling uh, MISL, what was that, about 1981, 82? 82 was my first year, yeah. So can you tell us, can you set the stage for us a little bit in terms of what the soccer landscape looked like in the U.S. uh, at that time? Yeah, at that time, um, 
There was no outdoor soccer to be seen on a regular basis, right? This is the early 80s. I think maybe the NASL was was still around, but I'm trying to remember because they had some issues. I can't remember exactly when they shut down, um, but part of that was they were competing with MISL, and they wanted their teams to also play indoors. But uh, in those days, you couldn't watch any of the games from Europe, Europe. Uh, Nobody knew about the EPL. It wasn't even the EPL then. I think whatever it was called, English First Division maybe. Nobody knew about that. Spain, Italy, Germany, you know, France, forget about it. Like nobody knew. Nobody could watch. And so MISL was really the only game to watch on TV. I mean, that was, that was all we had. And the reason why that league was so good back then was because we got some of the best players in the world at that time. You know, that were that were able to play, I should say. Um, and the same with the U.S. You know, all the best players that we had played here. And the marketing of that league was phenomenal. The things that they did with commercials, you know, with the player introductions, you know, the, the lights, the fanfare, um, you name it. And now we're seeing NBA, NHL, everybody else has copied some of these intros, but it all started with the MISL. They were uh, not afraid to try new things. The product on the field was good, and it was different. It was totally different. Yeah, I, I looked like you guys were averaging, what, about 12,000 fans per, per game. I saw on Nassau Coliseum, the soccer team was out drawing yeah. the Islanders for a little bit. Yeah, in Pittsburgh, we drew, I think the best we ever drew was maybe eight to 9,000 a game. Uh, but at one point we were outdrawing the Penguins until they signed Mario Lemieux. Once they signed Lemieux, you know, we were, we didn't outdraw them. You know, we were never bigger, you know, indoor soccer was not bigger than hockey, but attendance wise we were, you know, uh, Penguins got more notoriety, more media coverage than the spirit did, but we outdrew them until Lemieux came. So, you talked a little bit about the uh, the fascinating intros. I saw this old video of the Baltimore Blast uh, t- roster coming from the the arena top on a spaceship and then being announced on the field that way. And you know, you mentioned some of the marketing efforts. So, so what were some of the other things that you remember from that era as far as atmosphere is concerned around the league? Wow, um, fans were always you know close to the action. In, in that league, you know, banging on the glass like they do in hockey. Uh, fans were passionate. They, they became attached to their teams. Like, you know, we had the diehards. They were with us all the way. Um, the rivalry games were huge. Anytime Pittsburgh played Cleveland, you were either at a sellout or close to a sellout. You know, whether the game was in Pittsburgh or in Cleveland, it was intense. It was a, it was a real rivalry. Um, there were other rivalries in the league, like in the Midwest, you had one, maybe on the West coast, you had another one, but, um, and the fans were, I think a mixed breed, you know, like we had some young, some old, some older families, like the demographic was really all over the place. I would say. You think it was mainly people that had already watched soccer or, you know, immigrant families that were interested in the game or. No, I, I don't think so much that because I think just like today we have a lot of soccer snobs if you want to if you want to call them that like they'll only watch one league you know what I mean like they'll only watch the EPL and and they don't like Major League Soccer at all and they won't watch it 
you know, why is that? MLS is still a very good league, right? But, you know, that's their preference, right? Yeah. And so back in those days, I think somebody that was a, a real outdoor fan, a true outdoor, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, somebody that's really just true to their sport, that doesn't want to see any change. I don't think they came around to us unless somebody introduced them, you know, via a free ticket. We found that anybody that came to a game for the first time fell in love with it. I mean, they just thought it was fantastic because it was it was soccer, but with goals. You know, the biggest criticism about outdoor soccer back then and even today uh, from people that don't understand the game is that not enough goals. You have to watch a baseball game that's one nothing. that there's only two hits apiece and they'll think that's exciting, right? We, we think it's boring. But they think soccer is boring. So, like, you know, to each its own. But I think we had a we had more young people, I think, in general, like the teenagers, the college kids, because they saw this as something just totally different. And I think some of our teams marketed it that way, you know, come for the fast pace, you know, come for all of the goals, all of the saves. You know, we've averaged this many goals, this many saves, you know, come once. You'll love it. You know, guaranteed win night. Whatever they did, it worked. Yeah, yeah it looked like, uh, you know, you're seeing some high-scoring games. Like 9-7 wasn't that out of the ordinary. So I would imagine it was a pretty fun watch to watch how fast-paced it would yeah. be. I don't remember, when I say many, I don't remember any games that I broadcasted ended up like 1-0. I just don't have any recollection of it. Like a, a low-scoring game then might be 4-3 or 3-2 or whatever it was. There were always goals, you know, in indoor soccer. And, and, you know, the list of players that you had were world-class players that played for their outdoor teams, national teams. You know, in the old Yugoslavia before Jungle was banned for something, you know, he was a national team player. Terlecki played for Poland. Kazdena played for Poland. You know, these guys had international experience, and yet for whatever reason or reasons – they came to America to play, and they ended up playing indoors. Yeah, what, what do you sense were some of the reasons that, that drew the international crowd to MISL? Because I would think, you know, they are traditionalists, so it might be tough for them to rationalize going to the U.S., but I thought maybe it was player contracts, or I'd be curious to hear, hear what you think. I, I think at that point, you know, when I say guys are making six figures, it wasn't high six figures. You know, I, I can't remember – the most money that a, a Turlecki or a Jungle made, but it was probably less than, let's say, 300000 And 300000 doesn't get you that much in MLS, for example. Those players are making well north of that. You know, you have designated players that are making in the millions of dollars. So, but back then, you know, relatively speaking, you know, 100000 you know, uh, was a good living here. You know, in some cases they had their apartments paid for, had cars, whatever. So I, I think that back then, you know, players were coming in from countries that did have some issues, whether it was political, whether it was economical, uh, and America was the place to come to, just like it is today. Like everybody wants to come to America, right? When Lionel Messi had a choice of where he wanted to play, where did he end up, you know? They all want to come to Miami or New York or L.A., you know, or Chicago. Like those were the cities. Right. And, and back in those days, we did have a team in New York. You know, we had some smaller markets as well, but we had a team in Philly. Uh, the New York market, as I said, Houston was a pretty big market uh, in those early years. 
of the league, you know, you only had the six teams. But after that, when they expanded and then you had teams in other places, like San Diego was a destination place as well for players that wanted to come to America. So it was kind of an interesting time in, in U.S. soccer history, right? Because we hadn't qualified for the World Cup since 1950. It sounded like in 86, we were close, but it was a Costa Rica loss in L.A. And it was kind of like a Costa Rica home game at the time. But was our national team polling mainly from college and MISL in 1986, like 1990? I'd have to look at the roster to know for sure. But you know, when I think of that 1990 team, we didn't have many players that were playing in Europe. I think Balboa might have been playing maybe in Mexico. I can't remember. Maybe he was Mexico after that, I think. But, you know, Winalda was on that 90 team. Miola was a college kid. Um, trying to think of the names. Trichu, Doyle. I think a lot of them were college or something, whatever was known at that time, whether it was the APSL or the American Soccer League, but, you know, no one from a real higher league like we see now. Now you look at our national team and they're all over Europe, you know, and MLS, right? Whereas back then, now it was a young team, I would say mostly college or lower pro. Uh, and when I say lower pro, lower to the point that if this was today, those would not be leagues you would be looking at, certainly for national team players, not for the U.S. Gotcha. Like almost an equivalent of like an NPSL, if you're familiar, like that. Sure. Sort of or, or NISA. You know, you're not going to get a national team player, not a U.S. player from there. Right. I'm actually a uh, big NISA guy. Part of the podcast covers Maryland Bobcats, which oh, is nice. my hometown nice. team in Rockville, Maryland. So nice. always like a good NISA shout. I'm, uh, I'm surprised people have heard about it. but Yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right. So I've got to ask, too, about uh, it looked like Pittsburgh spirit. How, how long were you there? Were you there eight um, years? I was in Pittsburgh for from 1982 to 1986. Then 86 to 90, I went with the St. Louis Steamers. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Here we're going to be relocated. Uh, St. Louis was making me an offer anyway. So, like, the timing was right. And and I took it. So um, my eight years with a team was, let's see, four years with Pittsburgh. Yeah, and four years with St. Louis. At that point, were you looking to jump back into hockey or were you were you no. a soccer fan before MISL or did you kind of? Yeah, yeah, but outdoors, yeah. Um, no, I was not looking to get back into hockey, but I, I did make make a realization when I was doing all of this soccer stuff. And at that point, I was literally the only person calling soccer because it was a game of the week, MISL, and that was it for soccer, right? So I always thought, well, if that goes away or if somebody new comes in and they want somebody else, like I'm out of work, right? Where else am I going to go? So I started to do college basketball, which I had not done before, and then got back into some minor league hockey in the IHL. Uh, and started doing that to make sure that I always had work. But now if you fast forward, forget about me. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of people making a full-time living just calling soccer. But those opportunities then just weren't there. 
Yeah, it's almost hard to imagine in today's soccer climate. You know, I I turn on the TV Saturday morning. I can flick to ESPN Plus, watch Serie A. I can go to Peacock and watch Premier League. I can also watch Bundesliga on ESPN Plus. Then turn on Apple TV and uh, MLS is going. ESPN's got USL. There's so so much soccer content now. Yeah, I would say this to you, Michael. There's if you wanted to watch any league you want, you can name a league. You can name a random league. I'll bet you if you wanted to watch soccer in Belarus or in North Korea, you will find a way to watch it and probably not have to pay for it. You know what I mean? Whether it's YouTube, whether you Google it, whatever it is, you know, whether it's Paramount, Peacock, ESPN Plus, you know, somebody is somebody is carrying those games, right? During COVID, there were obscure leagues that were still playing. I was gonna they say were, Belarus, yeah. They I was were one, one. Of the few that was still they were one. And I was one of the ones that tuned in to try to watch it. Uh, but it's it's amazing now what you can watch and what you can't watch. And there's really nothing I can think of in the can't watch category, right? College soccer. You can watch whatever you want. You can watch NISA. You can watch NWSL. You can watch W League, USL. You know, I'm forgetting all the names. NPSL, right? I mean, amateur soccer, you can watch a game. They're all streamed, right? So, I mean, it's amazing we find time to find other things to do if you're a soccer fan because you could watch it 24-7. Yeah, you don't have to tell my wife that. She's definitely uh, sick of me turning on the TV all the time. Yeah. So it looked like uh, back with the spirit you had something called a hot leg contest. I, I was pretty <laughs> curious yeah. about that. I saw some some uh, YouTube videos. I'm not sure you can get away with that these days, but I wanted to kind oh, of – Oh, I'm sure. You. I'm sure you cannot. Um, I, I would have, in all candor – I would have refused to have read the commercials. They were explicit, you know, not explicit. What's the word I want? Um, Not innuendo, but something along those lines. It was implied, I guess, you know, it was, uh, it was sexist for sure. You know, I didn't write it. You know, I read it back then. That's the way it was. You know what I mean? I would never do it now. No chance. No amount of money. Yeah, no amount of money. I mean, how could you have a Miss Hot Legs contest? You know what I mean? Like, and they did. And they did. You know what I mean? Like, terrible when you think about it today. You know what I mean? But that's what they did. That's what they promoted. That was the edginess of the league. It's stuff that you uh, not only could not get away with today, should not get away with today. And I would have, you know, nothing to do with it today. But those were, you know, those are different times, like the 80s, the 70s, you know, the 90s even, right? Like things are different today and we have to be uh, a lot more responsible for what we say and how we say it. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess I guess really the point of that question was, was there any other, you know, promotions along those lines that you saw from the league? Like I saw Cleveland had, uh, you know, an actual live dog mascot. Uh, like things like that. Is there anything else that sticks out in your mind from, from that, those no. days? As as I, think I, I think I remember the dog mascot actually. Was that a Frisbee dog or? I think it was, to, yeah. Hot shot, I think. Yeah. Like no, we, had, we had different like halftime activities where you would think, wow, that was, that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and some of it did involve pets, you know, and Frisbees and somebody throwing them and somebody, a dog collects them. Uh, they did all kinds of things. They try to just be crazy. They, they, I think they overdid it 
to a point where I think even now today, fast forward to the MASL, where our, some of our teams are just like music crazy, you know, and the music is loud. And, and to me, we are entertainment, yes, but we're also a sport. And I, I think for me, the best atmosphere, go to an MLS game and listen to the supporters section, listen to the drums the whole way through. Fantastic, right? But, but playing the music, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe that's an age thing with me. But to me, uh, like take hockey. You know, when that organ is playing, the organ knows when to stop, right? They're not playing while the players are skating and the guy's on a power play and he's ready to shoot. They're not playing music, right? So those are some of the things that, that I would like uh, our teams to do a better job with. But, you know, I'm not, running, I'm not running an individual team. That's their decision. They can play loud music if they want, you know, as long as they want, as long as it's not overdone, I guess. But, but that's one of the things that I think we did and we learned as a league that, yeah, the music was cool and people were into it. They loved it. But at a certain point, you know, stop the music because we had Terlecki, we had Jungle, we had Tattoo, we had Marinaro, we had Preki, we had all these players that we wanted to showcase. And I think we have great players in our league right now that would like to showcase. Not, not of that level, because, again, those guys only came to us because there was no outdoor league like there is today. If there was MLS back then, that's where Terlecki would have been. That's where Jungle would have been guaranteed. That's where they would have been. I wanted to talk about um, you know, some of the players that stuck out. You mentioned Jungle, who I read a little bit about. But who are some of the other standouts of that league that people deserve to know about and why? This is, this is tricky. Um, I'm going to forget people for sure. But, you know, Jungle, Preki, Terlecki, Tattoo, fantastic. Uh, Hector Marinaro, you know, Zoran Karic, Hugo Perez. On the defensive side, you have Kevin Crow, Fernando Clavillo, Kim Rundved, who was, even though he was a defender, was as good on offense as any offensive player we probably had. Um, you know, goalkeepers from my friend Shep Messing, to um, Alan Mayer, uh, Victor Nagara, Zoltan Toth. You know, I am going to forget names. Uh, there were way too many, right? But I just gave you an encyclopedia of great players. You know, and as a broadcaster, um, it was the same in the NHL. When I had the privilege of calling Atlanta Thrashers games, anytime Ilya Kovalchuk had the puck, didn't matter whether Atlanta was winning, losing. Uh, out of the playoffs, in the playoffs, when he had the puck on his stick, I knew something electrifying could happen. And when Jungle had the ball at his feet, or Terlecki, or Tattoo had the ball at his feet, you know, I knew something special could happen. And as a broadcaster, it gives you that, that sense of uh, anticipation, knowing that you know, you better not be stumbling over words because you're going to be into a story and that ball is going to be in the back of the net and you're going to hear the crowd and you are talking over it and you missed a great moment. So I think in those indoor days, that's when I learned about the great individual player, what they could do, how they could do it, how quickly they could do it, and how I've got to be on top of that moment in order to capture it. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure it was a great experience as you, uh, you know, 
journeyed onto the outdoor scene, which is a good time to bring up the question. You know, what are what are the main differences between indoor and outdoor that that you see? I, I would imagine it's a faster paced game, but it also looks like more of a um, individual tech tactician type of of game. Yeah. I'm watching it, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts wow. are on that. Yeah, nobody's ever asked me that. Um, indoor to outdoor, the obvious thing is is the boards. Um, that's that's one. Uh, it's physical in both, right? Uh, stamina comes into play more in the outdoor game because theoretically you could be playing 90 minutes, whereas you're going in shifts. But it's a different kind of fitness too, right? I mean, if you're playing all out in hockey or indoor soccer – you know, and you're out there for two minutes, you're gassed, you know, but you wouldn't be running at that pace, you know, in outdoor soccer, you can, you can pace yourself more. So, you know, the boards are a big difference. Um, the strategy, the tactics, there's a lot more in the outdoor game because it's a bigger field. There's more players. Uh, the game is slower. Um, indoor, everything has to be bang, bang, very quick, right? You don't have time in the ball. In outdoor soccer, if, if nobody is pressing you, You've got a little bit more time in the ball. In indoor soccer, you really don't. Smaller field, you know, smaller in length, smaller in width. Uh, two totally different games. But having said that, I think if you're a good player outdoors, a really good player outdoors, you can make that conversion indoors and also vice versa. Yeah, I was going to ask if there's any players that you saw play indoor that were just lighting it up and then you later saw outdoor that maybe Precky. they look like a... Precky. Precky was 19 years old when he came to the MISL. He was a teenager. And then he goes on, ended up playing in England, I want to say for Everton, ended up playing in Kansas City in Major League Soccer, ended up on our U.S. national team. I mean, he was fantastic. And when people said how great he was, I said, you should have seen him at 19. You know, like he was something then. You know, and some of our better players, um, you know, Kevin Crow, Fernando Clavijo, Hugo Perez, you know, people would say they saw them and how good they were. And I would say, you saw them at the end. You don't know how good they were. You know, Kevin Crow, Clavijo. Clavijo was, even when Clavijo was in his mid-30s, almost late 30s, he was faster than anyone on the U.S. team at that point. And indoor... Go back, you know, five years before that. If you thought he was fast at the end, should have seen him in the middle or in the beginning. So I think that was the only tough part for some of these guys. They got discovered late. There was definitely a bias against the indoor player. They they can say there wasn't, but there was. Indoor players were not given an opportunity. Uh, I don't think the game was respected by those on the outdoor side. You know, from a U.S. soccer standpoint, I don't want to speak for them. But going back in time, that's what I remember, that uh, our league was not highly thought of. It was more of a gimmick league, just like uh, arena football maybe to the NFL. You're not going to – if there was a national team on American football side, you would not be taking players from the arena league. You'd be taking players from the NFL. And I think that was the same uh, rationale that we had back then. Yeah, I guess it's an interesting opinion to me, though, because there was no outdoor professional soccer at the, right. team, at the time. If someone wants to apply their trade as a 22-year-old, that's that's where they were going. So, Yeah, ours, ours was different because, remember, we, we basically invented the sport. 
We invented the sport. There was no indoor soccer before. Somebody played an exhibition game. I think it was in Philadelphia. That's where the idea first came about that, wow, maybe we can have a league here. And then you ended up with a six-team league at the start. I don't remember how many we had at the end, but you know the league lasted a while, lasted a good while. What were some of the ownership groups that came in behind that idea? Wow. We, we, had, some, we had some good owners. We had some good owners. We had some not-so-good owners. But I would say you know, the DeBartolo family that owned the, the Spirit also owned the Penguins and the 49ers at that time. That was... Uh, off the top of my head, the biggest name that we had, the Wallstein family in Cleveland was fantastic in, in terms of their ownership. They ran it like an MLS team would run it today. They ran it, you know, first class. They spent a lot of money. Um, you know, the Bus family didn't do as well with the LA Lasers, but they were, you know, a big name. That's huge. huge. That's massive names. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm obviously forgetting some. I'd have to really think back to, you know, who owned teams at that time. Donald Carter, who owned the uh, Dallas Mavericks at that time, owned us. So, you know, we had some big people. Uh, you know, to me, at the end of the day, as I think back, you know, the salary cap kept getting lowered. You know, you were you were losing players. Uh, not everybody was on the same page. You know, we were not as strong as like MLS today. If you look at MLS and the number of teams that they have, you have teams that want to spend a ton of money, would love to have no restrictions, spend as much as they can, but that's not the majority. But there's a good number of teams that want to do that. There's some that would like to keep it the status quo. There's some that think they're spending way too much and they're worried that they're going to be carried. There's all different factions in MLS, but they're on such solid footing because there's such a strong league and there's so much money behind it that they're okay, you know, to have those differences of opinions. Whereas in those days, whatever that number was in the end, number of teams, you know, there were some people that were saying, you know, I'm getting tired of losing this money. Uh, I don't see a way out of this. This guy's not spending money. We didn't have at that time, you know, somebody like a, like a guardian angel, like when, when Philip Anschutz basically saved Major League Soccer. You know, Anschutz, Kraft, the Hunt family, they saved MLS. You know, when the books are written, those three guys are in there, right? We didn't have that back in those days. Like, even as strong as the DeBartolo Corporation was, you know, they couldn't rally everybody and say, come on, guys, it's let's everybody... Uh, lock arm in arm, we can do this. You know, they were just as eager to get out as everybody else was when they saw things weren't working the way they thought they should be working. Yeah, this is podcast that's uh, 25 stories that made MLS that talks about, you know, MLS almost folding right after its inception, late 90s. Fantastic listen if, if anybody out there ever gets a chance. But uh, I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, any any last stories from the 80s that stick out to you before we move on to current day um, major arena soccer league, which you're involved in as the president of communications and media? Yeah, I think um, I love dynasties. I always have. So I'm a, I'm a Jordan guy. I'm a Gretzky guy. Um, I'm a Tom Brady guy. You know, I think there's something to be said for excellence. And when I was in the MISL, it was the San Diego Soccers. And I want to say they won eight out of the 14 
titles that were available. I don't know how many times they may have been runner-up, but they were always there. Toughest place to play, not because of the atmosphere in the building, although they had good crowds there too, but because you would be wherever you were, whether it was Pittsburgh, Minnesota, Cleveland, you know, you're coming there in January. It's 30 degrees where you are. You land in San Diego. They put you up where there's water. You're like, you're not on a beach, but you're close to it. And you think you're on vacation. And then you sit out by the pool, you get some sun, and then they knock you all over the field and you lose the game. And that's the way it was in those days. But San Diego was always good. They could always win. They could win on the road. San Diego found a way, even though every year the salary cap was lowered, every year they found a way to keep the players that they wanted. And they lost some good players, but they were able to keep the ones that they wanted, get some new ones in, and still win. And I respected them. There was a lot of jealousy and envy in those days because they won. And they they had a swagger. They did. And so some people think that that's great. And others think, you know, they don't like that strut, right? So San Diego was one of those teams. Yeah, San Diego was one of those teams where you either loved them, you know, or you hated them, right? But either way, uh, you had to respect them. They were fantastic. So let's jump forward to current day. Tell me a little bit about Major Arena Soccer League. Like I said earlier, I've got a team close to me, Baltimore Blasts. Definitely going to check them out. Um, but how did you get involved, and, and what's the kind of the current makeup of the state of the union of the league, so to speak? Um, I got involved a few years ago with Keith Tozer, who was a former player and coach in the MISL, and Shep Messing, legendary goalkeeper, uh, for the Cosmos and obviously New York Arrows, MISL. Uh, the league was advertising for a commissioner. Uh, the three of us, I don't remember whose idea it was other than it was not mine, uh, said, why don't the three of us apply for the commissioner's job? All of us together as one. Uh, neither one of us at the time had any aspirations of, of doing that on their own. And we said, what have we got to lose? You know, we were all indoor fans wanted to see the game grow, let's do it. So we applied, um, didn't get a response right away, then got a response that said, you know, basically, thanks for your interest, but, you know, uh, we decided to go elsewhere, whatever it said, I don't remember. Uh, and the only thing that bothered me about that was I thought, I would have thought somebody would have called us just to hear how it would have worked, you know, because you had three people who spend a, a good part of their adult lives in the indoor game, wanting to come back, not for the money, but for the opportunity, you know, to lead this and to see the game grow and nothing. And then we thought, okay, well, that's it. And then I don't remember the timing of it, but maybe a couple of weeks later, um, I think it was Keith or Shep uh, got an email or a phone call from one of the owners saying, you know, something has changed, uh, wanted to revisit this and talk about it. And then we had a couple of Zoom interviews and then we ended up getting hired. You know, so this is uh, the third year for us of a, of a three year deal, you know, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, it was a project. Uh, it still is a project. It's a challenge for sure in a very, very competitive market just 
going back to what we said at the top of the show during this interview, all the soccer that's available, you know, on television and, and the markets that we are in now in Major League Soccer that also have markets where we have MASL teams. So there are choices. You know, in Kansas City, Comets are doing really, really well in all facets of their operation. But they're up against not only um, sporting Kansas City from a soccer standpoint, but the Kansas City Current, who just sold out on season tickets for next year in their new stadium. And I haven't mentioned the Chiefs or the Royals, have I? You know what I mean? And Or baseball. So, I mean, those are the challenges that we face uh, as a league in cities where we have other high-level competition. And then in leagues where we don't, or in, in cities, rather, where we don't, you know, we do face building challenges. I know San Diego is in the process of building their own, which should be ready next year. You know, that's the first step. Uh, we don't have a situation where everybody can own their own building, but I'd like to get to a point where if you're not a primary tenant, you know, maybe you're the, the secondary tenant. In some cases, we could be third some cases we could be fourth, and that's harder to come up with a schedule and have the big dates, which for you know most leagues, I would say, you want those Saturday nights. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've been to the Bobcats uh, midweek games here on Wednesdays out in Germantown, Maryland. It's always def- it's definitely a tough draw, so I could, I could see that. So how do you got, how do you, uh, you know, what do you see the league as far as growth potential now? Um, you know, how, how are you guys trying to bring excitement and, and bring some of the old old days back to it yeah well we're excited about the latest signing empire striker signed marco fabian that's the biggest signing in this league's history outside of landon donovan coming here um several years back with san diego this is by far the biggest signing other than landon if we weren't talking landon and arguably jermaine jones it's the biggest signing in the history of the league um not just in the um Hispanic market, but also uh, internationally, uh, the American market. They know this player, you know, terrific player from Mexico, played in the Olympics, played in a couple of World Cups. I mean, if we can attract more players like that, then we're, we're on our way. I think this guy can transcend things. And full credit to Jeff Borum and the ownership uh, in Empire to make this move, because I can guarantee you this move cost them a lot of money. Yeah, it seems like maybe that's a good fit for, you know, he's a little bit older now in his career, but I would think that there's some better longevity in indoor soccer because there's less, um, you know, less miles run on the field, at least. Maybe yeah. it's quicker, but. Yeah, I think where, you know, when I think about this league and, and where it can grow, uh, I'm thinking from a player standpoint, getting players like that, that are still young enough, that have played internationally that are recognizable, right? I think we can get MLS players who are just finishing their career, might be 33, 34, maybe 35, still want to play. I think we can get those players, some of those players. Um, ownership groups, you know, can we get a an ownership group in like we had before? Like, can we get the bus family, you know, back in? Uh, you know, the Mark Cubans of the world, you know, like the, the names that you know, you know, whoever it is, whether it's the Crafts, Jones, Hunt, you know, can we get one of those names? You know, I, I'd like to think we're like 
you know, one or two big players away, one or two big owners away from significant growth. Because if you get one or two players of a Marco Fabian stature, you will get more. You know, the, the sooner that an NHL or NBA owner buys into our league, we'll get another one. We've had conversations with those people who have said, basically, I don't want to be the first one, but if you get somebody else, you know, we'll come in. So we're close, you know, and, and we're getting closer. But I think those are the things that that help, right? Because our players are good. Our product is good on the field. But now if you add those players, like a Marco Fabian, that does help you, right? If you add to our ownership group a name that everybody recognizes, that will help, right? And then if we can improve on, on some of the other things, you know, our streaming, our productions, you know, maybe we can get on a bigger platform. You know, it, it's all Michael in stages. When we first took over, like I said, it's a challenge. It's still a challenge and it's going to be a challenge, you know, for years because of what we're up against, the competition, all the things that are against us. But our thought was if we can improve everything that we do by 20 to 30% each year, that we will get better. You know, we don't know what the ceiling is, but we know we're far from it. And I think we've done that. If you look at just our website and social media, when we first started three years ago, it's night and day. Night and day, it's not even close. You know, our our rules have been changed to clean it up, to speed up the game, to make it more professional. Uh, there's so many things, so many things that we've done, but so many things more we can do and need to do. It's interesting. I have seen it show up on my uh, feed a little more this year. I know there's a website called Protagonist that, that specializes yep. in lower league soccer. Yep. They, they have an interest in covering you guys this year. And, yep. uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to paying attention this year and maybe getting out to a Blast game or two, uh, dragging the wife and kids out there. You should. You should. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Blast are one of our iconic names. You know, I, I think that's part of the beauty of, of our sport, too, the names, right? Like, San Diego Soccers, everybody knows who they are, right? Tacoma Stars, Dallas Sidekicks, Milwaukee Wave. I think this is a 40th year, huh. you know, Baltimore Blast, iconic name, iconic name. I mean, it's yeah. the glory days, yeah. right? I mean, those are the names. Those are the Jersey names, Kansas City Comets, you know. The only thing different, like in St. Louis, who's had a great history of indoor soccer, is the names have changed, right? Like, it was the steamers. Then it was what? The storm uh, ambush. Was there another one in there somewhere else? I'm trying to remember if there was another St. Louis name. But otherwise, I mean, they're legendary in terms of indoor soccer. They were the ones that led all these leagues in attendance back in the glory days of the steamers. 18,000 a game. They outdrew every, every indoor team. I just read a story today that said they were second. They were first. That's factually incorrect. Whatever story that I read, they were number one. Edmonton Oilers were number two with Gretzky. In the one year that I'm referring to, uh, they were number one. So they outdrew every NBA and NHL team in that one year. That's a wild, That's just wild that's, for me to imagine that. It's nuts. It's yeah. nuts. Yeah. That's, it's, it's a fact. It's a fact. I'll tell you another story about that league. 
they didn't even know where those 18,000 people a game were coming from. Because when I was in Pittsburgh, one of my jobs was uh, to work in group sales. And our president at the time said to me, do me a favor. When you go to St. Louis, he said, find out how they're getting these people into the game. There must be a recipe. There must be, you know, they can't be the only city in the country that's getting 18,000 a game. Find out what it is. So I, when I talked to the St. Louis general manager, I thought he was going to say, well, here's what we do. We do this, we do this, we do this, this, and this. And I'm ready to write it down. And I said, where, where are they all coming from? And he said, I, I wish I knew. I said, well, I said, what's the secret of your success? He said, we have good people answering the phones. And I said, answering the phones? And he said, yeah, people are just calling us for tickets. So when the attendance started to decline there, because they didn't know where these people were coming from, you know, they didn't know how to get them back. Because, you know, there was no recipe for it. Like, people just came to it, right? It was uh, largely based on the fact that they were using American kids, St. Louis-based kids. They marketed very well. I don't remember what the Blues, you know, were doing at the time, like, you know, how big that competition was back then. But it was a, it was a phenomenon. But, you know, if you fast forward to today, um, all of these teams know where these um, fans are coming from. Any MLS team would be able to tell you if if they were short this year by 3,000 in attendance, they know exactly, you know, what area it was. They know where everyone's coming from. You know, they do all the things on their phone now with the smartphones and the apps. And so you can track where they're coming from. But back then, other than groups, right, you had no idea uh, who was coming in, why they were buying individual tickets or season tickets. Nobody knew. All right, JP, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I have to, you know, when I reached out to MASL as general contact information, I, I can't say I expected an email from, from JP uh, Della Camera to come back from me and agree to an interview. So I really appreciate you jumping on uh, to this humble production. And while I've got you here, I was hoping I could uh, pick your about five minutes of World Cup talk, and then, then we'll let you get out of here. Um, so your first World Cup, I thought I heard, was it 1980 in Italy? 86 in, the games were in Mexico, but we were broadcasting in Canada. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's the hand of God year, wasn't it? Yeah, the CBC in Toronto. Yeah, Um, that was my first one. My first one in person was that 91 in Italy. So, yeah, every one of the ones that I've done, Michael, um, somebody said I should write a book. I'm not a book reader, nor am I a book writer. But I, but I, I thought if I would ever do one thing, um, someday I may do this, take every World Cup that I've done and just have like one memory, you know, and, and write it down so that if somebody asked me to, in, in a speech, talk about it, I, w- I would have that because I'd have to write it down. Um, there's too many things that you would forget and, and you'd want to say what the highlight was. And so... You know, in 86, what I do remember, for argument's sake, is that on the very first day, they had technical issues and various feeds around the world were going to the wrong countries. So, for example, uh, people in Sweden might have been listening to an announcer from Japan or from uh, the U.S. with a different language than they were used to. It was a mess. And the Canadians were actually there broadcasting the games. 
and they wanted to come home after the first game or two because it was a technical disaster, and they couldn't come back because we were in their studio. ESPN had rented out their studio for the month. That's what I remember, you know, about 86, all the technical problems. They got them sorted out in the end, but that's yeah, what I remember. Your job, yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty terrible, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. 1990 in Italy, um, they had us, it was Turner Broadcasting. Instead of staying at a hotel, they had us staying at a villa. Um, six announcers, eight announcers in one when I say mansion, it, it's not it's not a Beverly Hills mansion, but it's an old Italian uh, villa, if you will, where where you had like each of us had our own room, our own shower. We had a cook there. We had a soccer field there. We had a pool there. I mean, that was like that was living large. Yeah, that is living large. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was totally different than any other you know World Cup experience. Uh, but if I if I Go back again, and then I go into like 94 and 98, and then on the women's side, I should write that down because you do forget all of these things. And when somebody puts you on the spot and says, you know, what do you remember most about whatever year it was, you're thinking, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, you know? I was working. Yeah, yeah. So then real quick about 94, did you were you on site for some of those games? Yes, I was on radio for that. Um, I've done three World Cups on radio. Um, that... 94, uh, I mean, I remember all, all the U.S. games that I did and also the final because other than the U.S., my two favorite teams were Brazil and Italy, and they, they did play in the final. And I have an Italian background, so deep down I, I wanted Italy to win, but Brazil was probably uh, my favorite team in terms of the way they played back then. So I was torn, but to see Baggio miss his penalty kick was, I would say, a tough one you know, for me as a, as a fan, you know, when I thought about it later, it was like, wow, he missed that. But those are the things that, that you remember. And I also remember that every seat was taken at that world cup, no empty seats. We set a record in the U S for tickets sold for sponsors, you name it. We set the records in Italy, a soccer country. I saw empty seats, even at the final, I saw empty seats. So credit to the U S they set all kinds of records in 94, and they will shatter every record you can imagine, along with Mexico and Canada, in 2026. If people think they have an idea of how big this is going to be, I mean, the soccer people know, but the average person has no idea how big this is. This is the Super Bowl times whatever number you want throughout the country. And it's, it's, it's exciting time for the, for the U.S. team in general, too, just because of uh, how many players we have around Europe and how talented our squad is. So I'm looking forward to hearing you on the 2026 call. And thank you so much for spending time with me. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Michael. This is a good time to be a fan of soccer in the U.S. Thank you for listening to this Rooster in the Villain production. Please like, share, and subscribe with your friends if you enjoyed it. Goodbye. <laughs>